hour of six o'clock. I can't tell. Ah, there we are. Good evening. Happy New Year. Since I haven't talked to you since the year 2015 came upon us, this is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. And uh, we're going to spend some quality time between now and 7 o'clock talking about the thing that so many people in this town are talking about, which is the relationship between the police and communities of the city of New York. But before we get into that, and we have a very special guest who's written an extraordinary novel about Haiti. It's called God Loves Haiti. So Dimitri Elias Leger will be our guest about 6.15 or so. But before we get into that, let me say rest in peace. And so sad to hear that they have passed. About Mario Cuomo, the former governor. Stuart Scott, ESPN anchor. And I must say, showman extraordinaire. Bess Meyerson, uh, the first Jewish Miss America, as a matter of fact. And the fourth person on this list is someone none of y'all have ever heard of. Uh, well, I won't say none of y'all. There's an offside chance that somebody from the New York Skyliners is listening to this broadcast. Uh, but there was a guy, and I say was a guy, he just passed away on Friday night. He's 58 years old, truck driver by trade, but he was a member of the New York Skyliners, as was I. And we became friends. I mean, we we didn't hang out and go to each other's houses and that sort of thing. But he was one of those people that when you saw him, you always had a hug. How you doing? How you been? His name was Paul Peregrine. He went by the nickname Peanut. Peanut played the contrabass horn, which is the largest horn in the drum and bugle corps ensemble. You have to be kind of have a strong back, strong shoulders to carry a contrabass. And Peanut was part of one of the finest contrabass ensembles I've ever marched with. And, you know, I, I, I feel I felt such a sense of loss. Peanut fought not just one illness, but multiple illnesses during this last year of his life. And he kind of reminds me a little of Stuart Scott. Um, he had leukemia. He suffered a series of debilitating strokes. But last July, I was up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, at a drum corps show. And there were a group of former Skyliners that had all gotten together. And I was standing there talking to a guy by the name of Andy Lisco, who's been a friend for almost five decades now. We marched together in a drum corps up in Connecticut. And all of a sudden, I feel somebody tapping on my shoulder, tapping on my shoulder. I turn around, and at first, I didn't recognize him. And he looked at me, and he said, Mark. And I said, oh, my God, Peanut. And we hugged, and we talked. His wife, Brenda, who was his rock during his last days on Earth. Brenda did everything for this man. So uh, forgive my indulgence that I talk about my friend in the same paragraph as a Stuart Scott or a Bess Meyerson or a Mario Cuomo. But if you knew Peanut, you'd know why I miss and feel his passing. 
So, on to the relationship between the community and the police. Now, I have spent the better part of my radio career reporting on, and in many instances, railing against police brutality. It is a stain on the good name and reputation of the New York City Police Department. Let us be clear about that right off the top. But as people go back and forth, and Patty Lynch from the PBA is talking about blood on people's hands and blah, 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 blah. One ought to, I think, take a look at the history. And I have read some of the history of the NYPD. A lot of people don't. Jason, did you know? And by the way, Jason, how you doing, buddy? Jason's got a hoodie on, man. He's cold. I can tell. He is truly cold. Uh, At one time, there were two police departments in New York before the city of New York became the city of New York. But in 1898, they merged everything, and there was one New York City Police Department, the NYPD. In its early days, uh, the NYPD was feared by everybody. Black, white, sky blue, green. It didn't matter. If If they thought you did something wrong, they would come at you and they would open your head. That's the way the NYPD operated. That's the way the people of the city of New York tolerated its operation. Do you know, Jason, did you know that as late as the 1930s, They had plastic slip covers in the backs of police cars so that if a cop beat somebody and they bled, it wouldn't wouldn't bleed into the upholstery in the backseat. These cats didn't play, all right? Uh, And in those days, they would whip up on anybody. (laughs) They didn't care. Now, that's not to say that they wouldn't have reserved a special animus and special brutality for people of color. All right? Because I don't want people to get the wrong impression here. If you go back and you look at many of the so-called riots of the first half of the 20th century in Harlem, what do they have in common? A negative interaction. I've said this before. Negative interaction between the police and citizens. Black citizens, Latino citizens, etc. So you put a placemat in that for a minute. And then look at this situation where two cops were shot, not the ones that were killed, Wen Jin Liu and uh, uh, I believe it was Rafael Ramos, not those two, the, the two latest. And by the way, they, for those of you who don't know this, they've got some people in custody on this one. Okay. Uh, the main guy, the alleged shooter, Jason Polanco and the daily news. And I mean, I know some of the guys that write for the daily news, how they ended up saying the following. check this out, Jason, Jason Polanco, no relation to Jason Taubenfeld, who wounded two officers and his perp, (coughs) perpy friend, What is a perpy friend? 
I do not know what is a perpy friend, but that's what they call him here. Joshua Kemp. Uh, and by the way, uh, Polanco reportedly shot Kemp in the bicep. Now, these two clowns, alleged clowns, alleged miscreants, were allegedly, because I want to make sure we're all clear about this. I, I, I use the word allegedly. Robbing a Chinese restaurant up in the Bronx. Let me tell you something. For those of you who, you know, just want to sit back and talk bad about the cops all the time, 24-7, nothing, blah, 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 blah. Let me explain something to you. If two guys who, by the way, one of whom, Polanco, apparently, they were looking for because they liked him in a murder in the Bronx. A murder. Doesn't mean he did it, but they were looking for him to talk to him about it. But if two guys would rob a Chinese restaurant with guns, okay, and they would shoot at cops who they know are armed, if they needed some money and you were walking up the street, you, and they thought you had some money, you don't think they'd shoot you? I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to scare people. I'm not trying to talk bad about anybody. I'm just saying. If two guys like this, who allegedly robbed a Chinese restaurant, ran into you, needed money, and thought you looked apart, they'd take your money. And if you resisted, they would shoot you just like they shot those two police officers. And I have to tell you, Andrew Dossi and Alero Pellerano, the two cops that got shot, they're heroes. They're heroes. That's why I said all what I said before about, you know, police brutality and blah, 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 blah. blah. These guys are still heroes. They were going off shift. They were going home and responded to that robbery. That takes a special kind of guts and... When they talk about New York's finest, these two guys are them, along with Lou and Ramos. So, no, not all cops are brutal, bug-eyed racists. They're not. There are some, but not all of them. I don't even know if it's most of them, to tell you the God's honest truth. But I just wanted folk to understand that, you know, you can... Whine and moan about cops till you're blue in the face. And a lot of what you say may be true in individual circumstances. But all too often, we do not look at and acknowledge the good work of good cops. And believe me, if you think Jason Polanco is the only guy in this city that's walking around with a gun, and would use it on you if need be. I got a bridge down down the end of the, uh, over the East River. I got a bridge to sell you. Because these people, and it's not, it's, it's not everybody. There's 8 million people that live here. 8.4, I think, something like that. They're not all, you know, they're not all uh, crazy. They're not all, uh, uh, you know, folks going to run around and kill cops or shoot cops or, Act stupid. 
or attack you. So I'm saying all this to say that the situation with the police in this town is just a little bit more nuanced than a lot of people give it credit for. Now, it may well be because apparently 10 people, 10, ratted this guy out once, once the cops released his picture. Now, I don't know whether that was, you know, community altruism. Maybe they did it for the reward. <laughs> it was a $22,000 reward for his capture, Polanco. I don't know. Maybe somebody goes, hey, man, give me some $22,000. I don't know. But 10 people stepped forward. They too ought to get some credit. And I, I please, don't get it twisted, all right? I am not a right, I'm not Glenn Beck. I'm not Limbaugh. I just have my own mind about certain things. So I say what's on, what's left of my mind. Right, Jason? That's <laughs> what I got to do. Uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo eulogized his late father yesterday and said, when he didn't have to, by the way, but said that it's time to end the hostilities between the city hall of Mayor Bill de Blasio and the NYPD. There was a meeting, I believe, scheduled for earlier today between the unions and, uh, I believe, uh, Commissioner Bill Bratton, who I think most cops still trust. I think. I could be wrong, but I think. So hopefully there can be steps taken. And we're going to get into this whole drastic decline in summonses and misdemeanor arrests because I find that fascinating. Somebody said something to me last night that made me chuckle, but I, I, I want to talk to you about it as well. It's 15 minutes past the hour, 6 o'clock. We have got a very special guest who is coming up with us momentarily. Uh, he is uh, a world traveler, a world citizen, and he's written a new book, God Loves Haiti. And ironically enough, and number one, I've been to Haiti myself. Number two... Uh, on two different occasions, I might add. Number two, this novel has been uh, compared favorably to my favorite novel of all time, the great Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera. It's a sweeping novel about life in Haiti, in the wake of the earthquake, and a whole lot more. And it's a pleasure to welcome to our microphones here on the Mark Riley Show, Author, Dimitri Elias Leger. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for, thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you know, I, I, I just told the audience I had been to Haiti twice and uh, stayed at the Hotel Olufsen, which I'm sure you're a little familiar with, huh? Yes, very. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's an interesting place. Um, let's talk a bit about what made you decide to write a novel about the earthquake, its aftermath, and, and, and many other situations centering around three different characters? Well, I got there two weeks after the earthquake. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that struck me 
well, um, but the main thing that struck me, the thing that led me the most was, that impacted me the most was the stories I heard from the survivors of the earthquake. Mm-hmm. And across the spectrum of the society, from refugee camp residents to the National Palace to business people, and people of means across the place, and how they were wrestling with staying or leaving, and how hopeful they were in the middle of the most traumatic experience anyone ever lived through on the island. And as I heard those stories, and I heard their hopes and dreams and fears and confusion um, as a devil of PTSD, I thought a novel would be the best way to honor it. A good story about how patriotism lives in Haiti and thrives in Haiti, despite the trauma of the difficulties of being in Haiti. I thought that was a good story, a good book. That would be a good story, mm-hmm. um, an interesting story to write, and it would be a, an original story in the canon of literature about Haiti, fiction and nonfiction. Interesting. Dimitri, tell us about the three central characters. Uh, start with Natasha Roberts. Natasha. Ah, uh, Natasha. Beautiful young woman, immense talent, a gifted artist, but also a woman of deep faith, but also a woman who grew up extremely poor. She just wants to do her art in peace, and she wants to forget she was ever poor. Mm-hmm. She met a wealthy, powerful man, the president. And she thought that was a ticket out. But at the same time, there was an ex-boyfriend who was the love of her life. And when the earthquake happened, it um, triggers a deep sense of guilt, deep sense of confusion, of what her choices were before the earthquake and what her choices should be after the earthquake. Hmm. And I thought it was a universal um, impulse, a universal um, confusion. Um, I'm married, um, but even when I wasn't married, the the right choices um, are always concerned guests. And... um, in the context of being Haitian, in the context of Haitian's relationship with the rest of the world, um, those, that's where Natasha came from. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have to tell you, uh, her husband, Natasha's husband, and I, I, I know huh. that, that uh, you know, this is not necessarily true, but uh, I, why do I keep thinking of baby Doc every time I... <laughs> <laughs> I just, for some reason... Now, uh, obviously, Natasha Roberts is no Michelle Bennett, okay? Uh, Michelle no, Bennett no came Michelle from Bennett. money. Uh, but but uh, yeah. for some reason throughout the book, I, I, I got this sense that you were referencing or evoking or something uh, uh, Baby Doc Duvalier. Well, the beauty about fiction, and when you do get it right, every character has to be, will be familiar to you, um, either by identification or by um, memory or newsreels. And also, I tried to make sure all the characters in the book 
we're equally sympathetic mm-hmm. and we're as human as possible so that there was I tried to make it as hard as possible for the reader to figure out how the book was going to end and to root for one character to win um, win the Wonderful Woman's heart um, versus the other character. Mm-hmm. It's a love triangle. It's two guys in love with the same woman, a woman in love with two guys, and who would win? Who would she end up with? I wanted to be. I want that to be as um, difficult to figure out until the last page of the book. Tell us about. And uh, to do so, uh, I had to make sure everybody was sympathetic. <laughs> Understandable. Talk about Alain uh, uh, Destiné. What kind of person? Alain Destiné. Yeah. Alain Destiné is. Um, He's like one of the guys I grew up with here in Flatbush in Brooklyn. Um, Haitian-American, well-educated, and grew up on the hard streets of Brooklyn, did all the right things, but after getting his business degree, he did the odd thing of to go back to Paul Prince and help build the country up. He's a true believer, a true patriot in that way, even though he spent most of his childhood here in America. Mm-hmm. And his language, his inner thoughts um, are very American, um, very Brooklyn. Um, he's, a, he's a sweetheart, but he also got really hurt during the earthquake. And he really thought the love of his life was dead. And he missed his opportunity. Interesting. Let me ask you this. Uh, we're talking with Dimitri Elias Leger, author of the new book, God Loves Haiti. I'm going to ask you to do something really difficult because, I, you know, it's been a long time since I've been there, but I spent some quality time in Haiti twice. And there's something about that country that, uh, as, uh, you know, because, you know, the traditional American narrative on Haiti, oh, it's the poorest country in the hemisphere, blah, 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 blah. But it is also... Uh, there's something about it that makes someone wanting to go back totally understandable to me having been there. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, it's There's an allure to hate. Can you put your finger on exactly what it is? I'm a bit biased. <laughs> um, I was born there. I was born there. My father was born there. My mother was born there. My great, 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 great parents were born there. And I grew up in Brooklyn in my single-digit years, but I moved to Haiti when I was about eight. And from eight to 14, I was there, best years of my life. Mm-hmm. To be a little boy running around in Port-au-Prince, beaches in one direction, great food in the other direction, sunshine at all times. It's a Francophonic culture, which is a whole different touch on the ear versus um, English, mm-hmm. um, which is a different language and harder language. Um, it's a Franco-Latin culture, too, uh, especially when I was growing up, because the rich of the Dominican Republic was a lot closer than it is today, mm-hmm. and the American influence was a lot more limited than it was today. So it's a Franco-Latin culture, and when you contrast that with American culture, which is Anglo and, and fairly Germanic and a lot harsher. Um, it's a it's an amazing contrast. Yeah. It's an amazing contrast. It's a beautiful place. And I left when I was fourteen because the place was falling apart, and it was time for me to come to New York and go to high school and and find my life um, free of political instability. 
But man, I always remember those years. Those years stuck with me the same way your visits stuck in your, under your skin. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you. When I went back, mm-hmm. it struck me again. And I wanted a book that reflected that sweetness, that love, versus the headlines. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember seeing children on the streets of Port-au-Prince. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether they considered themselves to be poor or not. And to me, it really didn't matter. They were just so such beautiful kids. Uh, and, you know, uh, doing what they did. We were uh, at an estate and we were doing a broadcast back to the States when we were there the first time. And there was a water spigot out on the front lawn of this place. And a group of children came up to the spigot with buckets. And, you know, they wouldn't turn the water on. They just kept looking at us kind of like, can we, can we, can we? And finally, one of the one of the uh, uh, journalists that was with us, you know, uh, in Creole said, yeah, go ahead. And I mean, the happiness on the faces of these kids was just absolutely amazing to me. But, Dimitri, let me ask you about the earthquake itself, the role it plays Mm. in the novel and whether Mm. or not people could really understand how devastating it was without, as you were, having been there. Well, I could reverse that question. Um, did it? Did you get a vivid sense of the earthquake when you read my book? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, then I did my job. And I hope um, it's difficult. Um, to me, the earthquake is one of the characters of the book. The earthquake was this vivid, violent force that came out of the blue and shook everybody's life and shook the island to its roots. I mean, it's, it was an earthquake that took place in the middle of the capital of a city. That's never happened before. Mm-hmm. There are cities built to withstand earthquakes. Um, some of the best cities in the world, Tokyo, um, Santiago, Chile, um, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. San Francisco. But to have it happen in downtown, in the middle of the streets, um, at rush hour, I don't think Tokyo who's probably the best-built city on Earth, could handle a 7.1 earthquake in the middle of downtown. Mm. And Haiti had that happen to it, and it was the most violent rupture um, anyone could have imagined. And I wanted that sense of rupture, that violence, um, the sobriety of it, to be like a character in the book. And... um, and the contrast between people planning for love in the context of dealing with the shadow and the fallout from that incredible rupture mm-hmm. um, was the uh, shadow and light um, force throughout the book. That's what drove the art. Um, I went back and read a lot of World War II novels to um, gear up for this one. Oh, I, I read John Hershey's famous Hiroshima which was the entire issue of The New Yorker um, that tracked the lives of about five people who survived Hiroshima and mm-hmm. what happened to them that day. Um, so World War II were wars, and those extreme sudden flashes of violence and the COVID makers and the master, those were my reference points when it was time to look for art um, and literature that um, could help me capture the disruption that happened in Haiti that day. Mm. Now, 
final quick question. Can you envision mm. God Loves Haiti on film? Yes. Yes. Because the same World War II novels that I read for inspiration, I went to arms the end of, by Hemingway, mm. The End of the Affair by Graham Greene, The English Patient by Michael Ndadje were turned into movies. Absolutely. The English Patient, which has, which has as non-linear a narrative structure and poetic touch as my novel tried to have, mm -hmm. was one of the greatest movies of the last 20 years. It won like nine Oscars. Yeah. And if The English Patient could be a novel, God Loves Haiti could be a movie, God Loves Haiti has a chance. Um, it could get somebody an Oscar or three. <laughs> there you I go. Think. Dimitri Elias Legere, thank you so much for joining us, man. This has been a great conversation. And uh, I recommend God Loves Haiti, a novel. It came out, what, Monday? It came out Tuesday. Tuesday. So it's available in bookstores yes, throughout the area. Yes. Fantastic. Thanks yeah. for joining us, man. You take care. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Bye-bye. Right. Dimitri Elias Legere, and the name of the book, God Loves Haiti. We're going to take a quick break, maybe a, a, a slight musical interlude, and we got a whole bunch of other stories because we always have stuff. This is New York, all right? And even if it wasn't, you know, we cover the universe because we're on PRN.FM. If there's anything that you want to talk about, give us a call. Our number. 888-874-4888. I had to actually read it. 888 <laughs> We're going to talk about the ongoing nonsense around the Ferguson grand jury. And we're also going to talk about the slump in summonses and misdemeanor arrests here in New York. And whether or not maybe that's the way things ought to be. Stay with us. Twenty-eight minutes before the hour of seven o'clock, triple eight, eight seven four four eight eight eight. So, for the second week in a row, two straight weeks, New York City police officers have sharply cut back on making arrests and issuing summonses throughout the five boroughs, magnifying the growing divide between the city's police force and its mayor, Bill De Blasio. That's from the New York Times. I always like to attribute where I'm reading all this dramatic stuff from. Made half as many arrests in the seven days through Sunday, as in the same week a year ago. In the entire city, 347 criminal summonses down from 4,077 a year ago. Now, Jason, I was having a conversation with somebody about this last night, right? And I'm thinking, like, whoa. You know, what? 
You know what he said to me? He said, whether or not it's a job action or something, it doesn't really matter. The question is, is the current level where it actually ought to be? And the number of summonses they did a year ago, just ridiculously and artificially high. In other words, should it stay where it's at? And I hadn't, I, you know, I hadn't thought of that before. But on sober reflection, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, why shouldn't it stay where it's at? New Yorkers don't, there's no law that says New Yorkers got to fork over X number of dollars every year to the city for these, you know, in, in most cases, nitpick summonses. You know, I, I, during the last year of Bloomberg, small businesses were screaming bloody murder. You know, they were getting summonses for not cleaning up their front, you know, in front of their place or having a garbage can in the wrong place or saying the wrong thing to an inspector. I don't know. But when my friend said to me, maybe this is where it should be. I thought to myself, you know, you may be onto something. Maybe this is where it should be. According to the New York Times, most precincts weekly tallies for criminal infractions were close to zero. The precinct covering Coney Island didn't record a single parking ticket. Yay! <laughs> Traffic summonses or ticket for a low-level crime like public urination or drinking. Nothing. Now, maybe nothing is a little much, okay? But the flip of this is maybe these low levels, and, and see, I'm, I'm getting to something here that I know if you live in this city, you already know. So I, I don't need to necessarily preach to the converted. But these nit-nat summonses and, 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 and these sorts, of, this is a tremendous revenue generator for the city of New York. I mean, a tremendous revenue generator. So whether people want to say it's a slowdown, whether the cops don't respect the mayor, whether the mayor doesn't respect it, it doesn't matter. What they're doing hurts the city in its pocketbook, which is why the media, all of the the newspapers in this town are screaming bloody murder. Do your job. Look, the cops should do their job. But then those two cops that, that, that took those bullets the other day, they were doing their job. They didn't even have to do that job. So cops do their job. But this drastic decline is not just sending some moral message to Bill de Blasio saying you need to apologize. You know, hey, Jason, that's the most ridiculous crap I've ever heard in my life, that Bill de Blasio needs to apologize to the NYPD. You know what I... (laughs) Never mind. I can't say what I'd say if I were Bill de Blasio. Okay, I guess I could because this is an internet station, but I won't. Because I'm trained not to use that kind of language. But, yo, apologize. Get away from me. You turned your backs on me and you want me to apologize. See, what, he drunk? You're insane. But, you know, keep those cards and summonses coming. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's, uh, it's a little ridiculous, this whole thing. The back and forth between the NYPD and the mayor and this one and that one. It's kind of sort of stupid in its own way. And what one thing it does do, though, is it gives certain media in this town 
license to ill, to act stupid. You got one tabloid in this town. Oh, we love they fall. Every columnist they have falls all over themselves trying to say how much they love the police. Love them. Love them. They're wonderful people. And those daggone protesters, they hate the police. They're cop bashers. Get a grip. Now, I, I said before the holidays that I thought the protesters ought to have stopped until after the funeral of the two, so, two uh, police officers that were killed. They didn't. They defied Bill de Blasio. I think they may be experiencing a wee bit of backlash for that because it was just, to me, it just showed a, a kind of lack of respect. But I will say this. This whole black brunch thing they're doing, that's fabulous, <laughs> okay? <laughs> to have guts enough as young people to roll into some of these Tony joints where people are having brunch. Now, I, I will admit that once or twice in my life I've been to a Tony. My wife has taken me to Tony restaurants for brunch, like for my birthday or whatever. I don't go as a regular, on a regular basis. But for them, for the black brunch folks to just like walk into a place and say, yo, uh, we, we, have a, we have a beef, we have a grievance, and we want you to know exactly what it is. I think that's great. They did it in New York. They did it in Oakland, California. Matter of fact, more people did it in Oakland than did it in New York. What does that say about Oakland? What does that say about New York? I'll leave it to you to figure that out. But apparently the Black Brunch folks interrupted a former cop by the name of John Cardillo. And I I have to say, I'm glad he's former. (laughs) Okay, I'm glad he's not working on the job anymore. Uh, This guy posted a selfie with his gun pointed at the camera. Now, it was a Sunday brunch, so he did this Sunday night. Quoting here, I'm really enjoying these eggs, Benedict, so move along now. Hashtag Black Brunch NYC. What? First of all, understand that some of the people that were in these restaurants... Memeliano, uh, La Feliz, the Barking Dog, Pershing Square. Some of these people agreed with the protesters, but not John Cardillo. He had to post a selfie with a gun because he's a man. Right, Jason? He's a man. <laughs> a manly man. So get off of my eggs, Benedict, and don't disturb me, chump. Uh, and, I, you know... It's just so stupid. It's just so stupid. Now, I I don't know if Black Brunch NYC is going to keep this up. I hope they do. I really do. Um, I'm a person who looks for balance in life. So I may criticize the the, the protesters who didn't take a break before those officers were buried. But I also know a good protest when I see one. And this is a great protest. And thank God, John Cardillo, who somehow, see, this is what I don't understand. This clown boy ended up on CNN. (laughs) Pick a story, any story. We'll put you on. 
He apparently got into a screaming match with uh, Charles Blow, who's a columnist for the New York Times. Why Charles Blow would entertain this clown is beyond me. But, you know, this is, this is what I find, I won't even say irritating. I found this group to be incredibly cowardly. This was a feel-good measure, and they picked the softest target imaginable. What hard target did you want them to pick? You want them to disrupt the subway or something? The softest target. What, were your eggs runny? Is that why it was the softest target imaginable? Anyway, moving right along. The NAACP, Legal Defense Fund, which is, by the way, a separate organization from the NAACP, has written an open letter to a judge in Missouri asking her to investigate Ferguson prosecutor Bob McCullough and his team for misconduct. Now, maybe it's me, but I seem to... Jason, how long ago was I, did I say something about this? What was it, a couple, three weeks ago? I wasn't here last week, so yeah, it was a couple, three weeks ago. They let a liar, someone they knew was lying like a Persian rug, testify before that grand jury. But here's the NAACP's beefs, and, and I'll let you decide. I'm sorry, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. These are their beefs. One, McCullough and his team. I hate the term team. I'm sick and tired of team. But that's another issue for another day. Quote, knowingly presented false witness testimony to the grand jury. Now, McCullough admitted this. It's not like they're speculating. The man said he did it. NAACP Legal Defense Fund says that's a potential violation of the Missouri Rules of Professional Conduct. Specifically, McCullough allowed that woman, what was she, witness 41 or whatever her name was, to testify as an eyewitness who he knew was not at the scene of the incident and had a history of racially charged rants about the incident on the Internet. And I, you know, from the first time I heard about this, I scratched my head. How how do you get away with something like this? How do you do this? But they did. They did. They jobbed this grand jury. Jobbed. J-O-B. Now, here's where this gets interesting. If McCullough and company jobbed that grand jury in Ferguson, Missouri, what did Dan Donovan do with the grand jury in Staten Island was looking into Eric Garner? A judge, by the way, is getting ready to consider whether or not to release some of the testimony in that situation. Now, uh, you know, I, you can't accuse Dan Donovan of, of doing anything necessarily. But if you've been around for a while, as I have, you kind of sort of know how these grand jury things go when the cop is the accused. They bring in with what witnesses there were to whatever incident it was where an unarmed black man lost his life, or in the case of, for example, Eleanor Bumpers, a black woman who had the temerity to carry a knife, lost her life. So what they then do is kind of parse the witnesses. And when I say parse the witnesses, I mean they kind of divide them up into two groups. One group 
who generally ends up supporting the cop involved, which is seemingly given a greater credibility, greater weight to what they have to say. And then there's everybody else whose testimony as a group may well contradict what the other witnesses say. But for whatever reasons, their testimony is not given the same weight. I've seen this happen in case after case after case. McCullough out in Ferguson doesn't even seem to have, you know, bothered with the niceties here. His team, he and his team, according to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, quote, presented incorrect and misleading statements of law to the grand jury and sanctioned unlawful juror practices. Uh, Apparently, the assistant prosecuting attorney distributed copies of a Missouri statute that was contravened by a Supreme Court decision 30 years earlier. And when uh, she addressed the issue weeks later, she said that the statute was not entirely incorrect or inaccurate, but the grand jury should disregard it. Well, then why'd you give it to him? Come on, man. They jobbed this thing. You want to know why people are interrupting brunches someplace? Because this is not just a mis- miscarriage of justice. In my humble judgment, it's criminal. Of course, I said, Jason, I said this before, right? <laughs> I did say this before. It's criminal. There's no excuse for this. And three, and there are three bullet points here. McCullough and his team, quote, provided favorable treatment to the target of the grand jury proceedings. Well, yeah, he didn't get indicted. McCullough uh, McCullough apparently told the grand jury that the case was, quote, special. The questioning of witnesses often appeared to advocate for Defendant Wilson's version of the shooting. When the prosecutors questioned Wilson, they asked him, if we are sort of done with your questioning, is there anything that we have not asked you that you want us to know or that you think is important for jurors to consider regarding this incident? Now, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and they're the lawyers, not me, but they say this is deeply troubling. I say somebody ought to get McCullough in leg irons. Leg irons, I say. We'll see how that goes, though, because I I thought, you know, like the media didn't really cover it that much when it happened. You know, when the revelations came out and when uh, uh, this clown went on the radio in December, on December 19th, gets on the radio and says, yeah, I, I, I brought somebody in front of the jury. And, yeah, I knew she was lying. I knew she wasn't even there. But I brought her anyway. God. Uh, anywho. John Boehner, you know, I have not been looking forward to the convening of this new Congress, which happened yesterday, because it's a Republican majority in the House and Senate, Um, which I I, I just think it stinks. But I'm not as upset about it as I thought I would be because I'm less enamored of Democrats (laughs) than I used to be. (laughs) Not that I love Republicans, you understand. Jason, want to start another party, man? Something? Tories, Whigs, some, because it's like the first thing you see when it comes to the Keystone Pipeline or it comes to some of these other things. Well, 
Republicans are hoping to peel off some pro-business Democrats. What? Pro-business Democrats? Get a life. And, and the reason why they're pro-business Democrats, there's only two reasons. A, they're bought off. Or B, they're scared to death that if they don't act in the interest of business, then the Koch brothers or somebody else will pour money into somebody else's campaign. And my God, they'll have to go out and find a real job. So Boehner, uh, you know, he has to go through the formality of a vote, you know, to be speaker again. What is this, his third time, I think? Uh, So apparently there was a a spot of a challenge to his leadership. As a matter of fact, a bigger spot, roughly double the spot of a challenge than there was the last time he ran. Who's doing the challenging? Trust me, it ain't progressives. It's the most knee-jerk, Tea Party-ish, Yahoo-ish members of the United States Congress. These are the people that think that there should be no minimum wage, that they should repeal the Affordable Care Act, come hell or high water. If they don't get what they want, they're perfectly willing, as they have shown, to shut down the government. Now, traditionally, and I don't want to tell the Republicans how to do their business, okay, but traditionally... If you cross a speaker, hey, Jason, you remember that scene in The Godfather when uh, the second Godfather, when uh, uh, Frank Pentangeli got caught up and and Robert Duvall says to him, uh, uh, Tom Hagen, well, you know, the Roman legions, their families will be taken care of. They go, they have a sip of wine and they cut their wrists in the bathtub. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm not advocating that for the people that cross Boehner on this. But I can tell you, if it was me, I'd have their offices moved to stinking Baltimore. How about that? You want to mess with me? Go legislate someplace else, creeps. (laughs) But that's not how it works. He may need them at some point. But, you know, he he didn't mention this after the vote because he knew he was going to win. You know, they go through all of this psychodrama. Well, John Boehner end up losing. No, of course he's not losing. Uh, so he said, quote, they say that nothing is going to be accomplished here. The division is wider than ever, so gridlock will be even greater. He said, his voice sometimes breaking with emotion, according to the New York Times. <laughs> no, this won't be done in a tiny way, a oh, tidy way. The battle of ideas never ends, and frankly, never should. Ooh, Boehner has an idea? Okay, I'll take your word for it. Now, they got a big majority, you know. Uh, but when it comes to the Keystone XL pipeline, which, by the way, we ain't getting that oil that's coming down through there. It goes to refineries down, down there by the Gulf of Mexico. They refine oil, ship it out. You know who makes out like bandits? The stinking oil companies, like they need extra money. But when it comes to Americans, they ain't getting none of that. So why is why are all these people, you know, acting as though not approving the Keystone XL pipeline 
is akin to treason. I don't understand it. I do not understand it. Now, President Obama's threatened to veto this bad boy. And it looks like, hey, Jason, what is it, six years into the gig? Yeah, six years into the gig. It looks like uh, President Obama's, I don't want to say growing a pair, because that would imply he didn't have a pair before. I think he did. But he's a little bit more feisty now. You know, I mean, he's not ready for a mixed martial arts match with these people, but he looks like he's, you know, he's ready to battle for what he feels is important. And that's a good thing, whether it's immigration, this pipeline, and he's going to have to battle again for the Affordable Care Act. They don't want to rip it apart and drink its blood like they did a couple of years ago or even as recently as last year. Because, uh, Jason, do I, should, I, should I share this with the PRN audience? Fewer people are uninsured in America than at any time in its history. Fewer people. I think it's like 12 million. When all this started, you know how many people were uninsured? 40 million. That's an accomplishment, man. Whether you agree with Barack Obama, whether you think he's the second coming of George W. Bush or Malcolm X, it don't matter. That's an accomplishment. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. You know, I have to do the grammatical thing here. So, uh, you know, let them have at it. Let them have at it. Sanford Rubenstein will not face rape charges. Cy Vance, the district attorney of Manhattan, said there is not sufficient evidence to charge him. You know, he spent three months investigating these allegations. Uh, Samford Rubenstein, who, by the way, if you've ever seen him on TV commercials, you don't have I don't have to repeat what he says. He's won large settlements in some of the biggest civil rights cases in New York. Uh, He always maintained his uh, innocence. But the allegations alone got him beat up pretty bad. And even Al Sharpton got rid of him. (laughs) I shouldn't say even Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton disassociated himself. The female executive, who, by the way, is on the board of Sharpton's National Action Network, uh, accused Sandy Rubenstein of sexually assaulting her repeatedly in his penthouse. Now, I don't know whether or not, you know, uh, ever since the Dominique Strauss-Kahn thing, there have been whispers that Cy Vance is gun-shy when it comes to prosecuting these kinds of cases. I don't know whether that's true or not. But a lawyer for the woman, who's never been identified and should not be, said that Vance's investigation had been, quote, incredibly inept and criticized him for not letting a grand jury weigh They didn't have a grand jury? What? What happened? Why not a grand jury? A grand jury with all these cop cases? Anyway. Uh, he read that uh, Sandy Rubenstein appeared briefly at his lawyer's office and read a statement. Quote, I maintain from the very beginning I did not violate the law. I am pleased that the system worked and I now have been fully cleared. I did not violate the law? Uh, in the court of public opinion, my brother, <laughs> whether you violated the law is the least of your problems. Okay. They got your partner on the TV commercials now. You know, you had to take a bit of a hiatus. Uh, But I I just, I I don't know. I don't know. So what do we got, Jason? About three minutes left? Yeah, okay. So we'll do to the ridiculous for the last three minutes. 
I was watching the Dallas Cowboys-Detroit Lions football game, which is a story in and of itself because there were a couple of blown calls that might have changed the outcome of that game, which the Cowboys won. But when Dallas scored their last touchdown, they did a shot. Actually, I think even before they scored the touchdown, they did, did a shot of the owner's box. That would be Jerry Jones, the guy who built the magnificent palace in the middle of Dallas, whatever. And who's over there? Oh, God, I don't want to call him Big Bat, so. The governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. And when Dallas scored the winning touchdown, Christie danced like he had a piece of the franchise or something. And by the way, you know, he's getting ready to announce he is. Uh, Jeb Bush kind of ruined his plans. He was going to lay in the cut for a while, but since Jeb Bush got out there ahead of time, Chris Christie says, well, well, he hasn't said it, but it looks as though he's accelerating his plans to run for the presidency. Attention, America. Attention, attention. Before you go to vote for Chris Christie or donate a dime to his campaign, look at the statistics of the state of New Jersey during his tenure. Just pay attention. That's all I ask. I'm not going to run them all here. I don't have time. (laughs) But believe me, look at the numbers. And then decide for yourself if this is the guy you really want. I don't I, I tell you the truth. I'm still Jason Liz Warren. <laughs> That's who I got. Liz Warren. I mean, I, I got nothing against Hillary Clinton. But going back and forth between Clinton and Bush's bores me. Give me Liz Warren. We're not going to get Liz Warren. I hate to say this. We're not going to get her. I don't think she'll run if Hillary runs, which I think she will. But I think, first of all, When they get ready to run in 2016, Barack Obama's presidency will be seen as a relatively successful one, in spite of all the crap he had to put up with and in in spite of his own missteps. I, I, I believe that. I really believe that. But be that as it may, it's not about what I believe. I believe, by the way, in the Progressive Radio Network, who has hosted me and given me this hour of airtime I very much appreciate Gary Knoll, the entire staff here. I appreciate Jason Taubenfeld, his hoodie, and his orchestra, (laughs) who's been here with me for the past hour. We are going to be back to do this all over again. I'm sorry I missed last week. It was like, you know, New Year's, man. What do you expect? Anyway, next week, 6 o'clock, here live, it's the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a great evening, and please stay out the cold.